Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. It's so good for us to worship together and to be in the Word of God. Um, I really encourage you after this to um, join us. And there's plenty of food um, right in the Ridge Room right after the worship service. It's a great time for us to be together, to, to care for one another and to enjoy some food together. We're starting a series in Paul's letter to Titus. And so we'll be in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 this morning. If you've hit Hebrews, you've gone a little too far. We're going to be studying Paul's letter to Titus, um, Lord willing, for the majority of this semester um, till Thanksgiving. There will be several of us preaching through that letter. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The word of God says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we, we come here as a people who believe um, that you are true. We believe, God, that you make promises and you fulfill them. We do not uh, gather in our own name, in our own strength. We gather um, under the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who loved us, the one who gave himself for us, um, and in him we have great unity. We are the body of Christ. We are Christ's body because of what Christ has done. And so as we study your word this morning, God, I ask that you would draw us into the thing, the truth that makes us who we are, your people, by faith in Jesus. Father, please be with me. May your word be clear. Your word is true. We believe your word is true and it cuts and it mends and it heals and it convicts and, and we need that from your word. May we leave here confident in you. Less confident maybe in ourselves, more confident in you. By your spirit, God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Strong houses need strong foundations. That's a, there's a parable that Jesus told. It was going to be familiar to many of you. Um, there were two people. One of them built ha- a house on a rock. One of them built a house on sand. I don't even have to tell the end of the story for you to know that the one built on the sand succumbed to 
wind and rain and fell flat. The one built on a rock stood firm. Strong houses need strong foundations. God is building a house. God is building a house. He has chosen, and this passage tells us that he's chosen a people for himself. The passage calls them God's elect or God's chosen ones. It's the people of God. And, and, the, and the house he's building, he's calling it a church. It's made up of, of the people of God. Collective whole, the church, made up of individual members. He's building this house, and, but it, as he's doing that, he's, he's chosen this people, and he's going to save this, pe- this people for himself. Um, and he does it using frail people, weak people, to proclaim him, to proclaim his message of salvation. Paul is one of those people. He's a frail and weak person who's God, who God is using to build his church. Paul has played a foundational role. He, he's, he's writing this letter to his beloved Titus, who he has a very close relationship with. He calls him his true child. We don't know that they're by blood. We don't believe that. But they have a, a common faith together. They are brothers in Christ. We know he was a Greek. We know that he went on some of Paul's missionary journeys. And at the time of Paul's writing this letter to Titus, he left Titus on the island of Crete. He was left on Crete with a job. Um, we'll, we'll focus a lot on it next week. Bert's going to preach. Um, but he's bringing order to some established churches in Crete. Um, he's going to establish leaders. Paul, ultimately, God has given Paul to the task to proclaim Christ. Paul is writing to Titus, who is establishing churches on Crete, and they want to have healthy churches. The goal is that we would be healthy, that they would be healthy churches. Healthy churches have godly leaders. That's one of the things he's going to teach. Um, Healthy churches, uh, they silence false teaching. When the truth is not proclaimed, when error is proclaimed, they silence that. Healthy churches are filled with women and men of all ages, of all walks of life, who live by faith in Jesus and walk um, in, in, in sound doctrine. However, in order for Paul to get into the teaching of this letter, he needs to give some, uh, he needs to establish a few things. He needs to establish what his ministry is founded on. He needs to remind Titus of that. Why does Paul do what he does? What is his life, what is at the center of his life? And why then should the, Cre- the Cretans, the church there, listen to Paul? And in doing so, as he explains why he does what he does, he explains what the very church of God is founded on. God's church is founded on God's revealed truth. God's truth is the foundation of why Paul lives the way he lives, he does the things that he does, the message that he proclaims. God's truth is why he calls himself a servant, an apostle, a proclaimer of Christ. The church is founded on God's revealed truth. God is building his church, and he's doing it on a foundation, a rock-solid foundation of truth. This is helpful for us because we live, if we're honest and reasonable with ourselves, we really do live in a world where there are a lot of uncertainties 
especially when you think of human relationships. We're a church that's meant to be made up of a people of God, many people from different walks of life, and relationships are built on trust. You trust your neighbors to be neighborly. You trust your friends to be loyal. You trust your boss to be honest. We trust in many things, more things than you think, every single day. Investments, we build investments on trust. Stocks, they go up and down based on our confidence, the confidence that you have in a company. When you lose marketplace failures, scandals, a lot of those scandals are based on failure, the trust being broken, right? Lies, deceit, misconstruing the numbers, giving people false confidence. When that's broken, you lose confidence. As long as people remain faithful, you feel okay. But when people fail you, uh, your trust can waver. And some can feel that way about Christianity, uh, when, a, when a Christian, maybe a leader, fails, confidence can get weakened in God himself. I think Paul is wanting to, to show us that we shouldn't put our faith in people or leaders. Um, we put our faith in the word of God, in his truth. He's grounding the faith of Christians in the truth of God. So if God is true, everything changes. If God is true, you can have real trust. You can have real confidence moving forward. You can have real hope. If, if God is true, the knowledge that he gives you is going to actually do something. It's going to promote godliness in your life. If, it's tr- if he's true, you, you have certainty. You have certainty in this life, in him. You can go forward in faith. So the, so the great need for us, the great need for you and me from this passage is to see and believe that God is true. See and believe that God is true. If we see that God is true, trusting him, trusting his work by faith, that's where real transformation happens. happens. It's what transforms us from a people of uncertainty to a people who grow in faith and godliness and hope. In order to see our great need, I believe the passage shows us two simple foundations. They're really the same thing, but there's two simple foundations um, that are from this passage. And we're going to look at those, and then we're going to look at outcomes. What are the desires that Paul has for you and me from the Word of God? What is, he, what are the, what is the desired outcome of these truths? So we've got to start with the truth and then the outcome. We don't want to start with the outcome and look at the truth. We want to look at the truth first because that's where the foundation is laid. So we'll start with those two truths or, or two foundations. And they're all about God. First of all, God is true. God is true. Look at this, this passage here. In verse 2, Paul says that God makes promises and he never lies. God who never lies. Literally, God is an unlying God. He's an unlying God. By definition, God isn't able to lie. If he could lie, we would not call him God. If there is any hope, knowing that people are unstable and unsteady and we we live in a world where um, things could change really quickly... If there's any hope that in that world where there's alternative truths and you don't know what to believe, if there's any hope that truth can exist, it is in this God who's not bound by time and space. 
We exist, right? Inside time and space. And wherever we've occupied in time and space, humanity, we have been untrue. There's not a time in our existence when we are not um, guilty of, of some deception. Even the smallest thing. We lie. But that it's very fortunate for us that God is not like us. A big error we can make in our Christian walk or in reading the Bible is assuming that God is like us. God is not like us. Numbers 23 Cole's going to have it on the screen, says, God is not like man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God does not lie. He's not like us. This reality of God's truth, it, it shapes all of his character. You think of the character of God, God being just and faithful and holy. The, this, this one truth, is impa- all of those characteristics are impacted by the fact that God is true. If God is holy, so he's completely other, I think hit on that a little bit, right? We exist in time and space and we're, we're, we are people who have lied and do lie. God is holy. He's totally other. If he were not true, he would not be holy. Think about his justice, though. His truth informs his justice. If God is able to, to demand or tell you that he is just in the purest sense, he must be true. If you ever stand before a jury, uh, and that jury has that opportunity to find you guilty or innocent of a crime, you're not standing before a completely true jury. They're going to do everything that they can to be true. But they are not true in the sense that God is true. A thousand different circumstances could happen that could twist the truth and get you convicted of something that is false. We can be swayed. The truth, it can only set you free, but not if that, it cannot set you free if that jury deciding your case fails in the truth. The truth only sets you free if, if the one hearing your case is totally reliable, totally without error, totally true, and that's God. It informs his faithfulness. God is always going to do what he says he does. Has he not said it? Will he not do it? It informs his love. It informs his patience. If God is true, you can be confident in everything he says about himself and about you. The second foundational truth is that God, the true God, he says things, he reveals things about himself to us. He gives truth. God is true. God gives truth. We're absolutely dependent on this fact for God to give truth. How does God give truth? He we, we don't, when, you, when you're looking at Paul, Paul is saying, like, God does not lie. How do we, know, how do we see God putting, putting that on display? The answer is, in the Bible, is that God makes promises. He makes promises, and then he manifests them, or he reveals them. If you want to sum up 
And this is uh, maybe a helpful connection to what we're studying in Nehemiah. Sunday schools, at 9 o'clock, you should, you should be there. If you want to sum up the, the whole essence of who God is and the story of salvation, the story of, of Christianity, it's that God makes promises and God keeps promises. God makes them and he keeps them. God gives truth. He says things that he'll do and he fulfills them with his word, with his action. Through countless ways, God always keeps his promises. But there's a few ways that Paul shows us that we can, we can see um, how God makes and keeps his promises. So first of all, it should be standing out like a sore thumb, it says that he promises things, he makes promises before time began. He makes promises before time began. So you look at verse 2 there, right? The foundational promise, the promises of eternal life, so your hope that, that in Christ, it's not the end. It's not death and hell, but it's life, eternal. That promise of eternal life is founded in a promise that God made before the ages began. This is an important point. Before you even existed, God made a promise of eternal life. So he makes promises and they're even existing before time began. Now, just because he made promises before doesn't mean he keeps making promises and keeping them. Um, When you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament is filled with promises that God made and promises that God fulfilled. Verse 3 says he, he pro- makes promises in his word. You see that there? Um, at the proper, proper time, he manifested, so he revealed his promises in his word. In his word, he did that. And so in one sense, it's, you can look at the Old Testament, and you can see that, that um, God is, is making promises there, and, and, and he's going to fulfill them. We're witnesses to that. We can see in the Old Testament God making those promises and we look to their fulfillment. The ultimate one, the ultimate promise that that God made in the Old Testament was that God would save, save a people. He would save a people for himself. He would be their God despite their rebellion. He's going to work it out. Despite the sin of Israel, despite your sin and rebellion, God is going to save a people by his own power. One of the promises God made, which is, is uh, fulfilled in the New Testament, is from Isaiah 41.10. God says this to Israel, a people who are reaping the consequences of their rebellion against God. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It's a promise he made. And that promise is a shadow of the fulfillment that we see in the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, In the Old Testament, he makes promises. Before time, he makes promises. And in his word, made flesh, he makes promises and fully manifests and reveals himself in the word made flesh. Jesus is called the word made flesh in the Gospel of John. And the core of Jesus' message is is the gospel. Jesus came. Jesus died 
a sacrificial death, and Jesus rose again, defeating the power of death, and now he sits, sits uh, reigning at the right hand of God. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, write that, that note down. Paul reiterates the gospel to the Corinthians there, and that's what he says. Christ died, Christ was raised, and he was seen. He's witnessed by many. That is the greatest promise made, promise fulfilled in the person and work of, of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul alludes to here. He says, Jesus is our Savior. He also calls God our Savior. God is working out a great salvation. And in verse 4, he says, Jesus is our Savior. That is the ultimate hope of eternal life, the coming of Jesus Christ into the world to bring about the hope of eternal life. How does he save How does he save? He saves us from ourselves. He saves us from our sin. When um, Jesus came and died on the cross, he came for people who had all sinned and all fallen short of God's glory. And in falling short of God's glory, we were worthy of destruction, of hell. But Christ came, he paid in full the debt of sin that would drag you to hell. And if you trust in Jesus, you're saved from that misery by the perfect life and sacrificial death of Christ. Jesus is a savior, the savior. So it was made known before time began or it was promised before time began, it was promised in the Old Testament. The promise was revealed in Christ that Jesus would come. And now Paul, we're looking at Paul, the word is being made known by Paul, or is made known to Paul, so that it would be proclaimed for the entrusted preaching. In verse 3, Paul says, the word, he manifested in his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted to. So here's Paul trying to say, as I'm coming to you, I'm coming as an ambassador of Jesus, and I am proclaiming not myself, but the message of Christ. He is making Christ known. And that's what the purpose of gospel proclamation is. The world needs to know. The church needs to be reminded. The world needs to know. We need to live under, as a people of God, who are blown away by the the truth that Jesus came and died for us, and in him we have life forever with God. So God gives truth. He makes promises, and then he manifests them. He manifests them to us. Before time began, he promised in the Old Testament, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and now proclaimed. Notice with me really quick that behind the foundation of all the, the, the point of the, this, this passage, the foundation under any Christian, any church, anyone truly who's preaching the gospel is God and his work. God and his work. We are in an absolute state as the church. We're in an absolute state of dependence on God. Dependent on him to reveal himself. Dependent on him to save. Dependent on him to work. And he does it. He promises it and he fulfills it. We exist in that cycle of dependence on God. And we still do. Paul still does. Dependent on the Lord to proclaim the message. We as a church, dependent on Christ to proclaim that message 
empowered by him. Let's look at the three applications. Let's close and and look at these three applications. So if God is true and God gives truth, he reveals it, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for God's church? So there's three desires from this passage that the word of God has, has for your life, has for my life. Three desires that you would be shaped by, transformed by. Rest on that firm foundation and move forward. Faith, knowledge, and hope. So first, may God's revealed truth conquer you by faith. May God's revealed truth conquer you by faith. In order for an enemy to become a servant, surrender has to happen. In order for Paul to become a servant of God, something had to happen in his life. He had to bow the knee. That's what Paul describes himself as, right? He describes himself as a a servant, literally slave. He calls himself a slave of God, a happy slave, willingly subjecting uh, under the rule of God. He then describes himself as an apostle and a messenger. And then in in verse 3, Paul says that God commanded him to preach. So he's a proclaimer. He's a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus so that the faith and the knowledge of God's elect, God's people, would grow. Paul describes himself as one who is completely conquered by the revelation of God. God's revealed truth transformed Paul to become a slave and a messenger, a servant, and a messenger. His life was changed forever. And now Paul, I think, thinking in perspective, we know Paul was radically transformed. There was a time in his life when he gave every bit of his energy to destroy Christianity. He wanted nothing more than to persecute and kill people who said, we are Christians. But one day, Jesus appeared to Paul and his life was changed forever, radically changed forever. He became an apostle. He played a foundational role in establishing the church. 13 of 27 of the the New Testament, uh, the letters, 13 letters in the New Testament are attributed to the apostle Paul. He became um, a, a proclaimer of the gospel to the nations. He was changed We need to see, just as Paul did, the truth of God's word, that he is true and that he has revealed himself in Christ so that we too may be overcome when we realize that Jesus is our savior. May we put our faith in him. You know, the message that Paul received is the same message which transforms and conquers lives just today. Paul did not receive a special New message or something that's changed over time, it's the same message. Christ lived, Christ died, and Christ defeated death. Put your faith in him as Lord. Jesus is still reigning right now, and that message is proclaimed to you right now, just like Paul received it. Paul received that message of the gospel and is proclaiming it. We need to also see the risen Lord 
proclaim him by faith, and we see in his word, Christ died, Christ was raised, he is reigning right now. It's not a different message that Paul heard and believed. If you believe by faith in Jesus, you, you too get swept into the faith, a faith where God in Christ is your head, your boss, your ruler. He conquers you forever. You cannot partially dip your toe in the water or partially bow the knee. Let us be conquered by the truth that Christ is our, our Savior. May that conquer us by faith. Secondly, may, God, may the foundation of God's truth make you grow in godliness. There's a desire from this passage that we would not just know things in our head about Jesus and, and as we take in the word and just know it for head knowledge. That, that is not the way you see Paul talking to Titus. He, he's not going to say, think this way so that you have more knowledge in your head. Fill, he says, rather, fill your mind with truth. Fill your mind with truth so that you would explode in action. May action fall, fall forward. And, and, and that's why Paul wants these this people in, in Crete, Titus and them, uh, to do good works, to be zealous for good works. Old men, old women, young women, young men, servants with bad bosses, Titus himself, he's going to be in them, calling them to live for Christ and live in godliness, godly deeds, godly relationships. Let the fruit of the Spirit flow out of you. Let the fruit of the, the Spirit flow out of you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, it's interesting, in order to build, a, a, to, to, to have this people be a church, Paul doesn't spend a lot of time talking about a ton of structure or how orders of service should go. Um, he talks about practical things like being self-controlled and having leaders that are godly. There's no special diets he offers. There's no quick fixes he offers. He desires people to be godly. How does godliness happen? Soak in and know the truth. Soak in and know the truth. That's how it happens. May you know this. May you know the truth. You see there in, in verse, um, verse, two, verse 1, the truth which accords with godliness the truth which accords with godliness or it, it's consistent with godliness or it promotes godliness. So there's a truth that God gives in his word which exudes godliness if it is believed. God is the one who, as you know the truth of God's word, it exudes out of you godliness. You don't need anything other than the truth of God's word to believe him by faith and God will grow you. Third, uh, may the foundation of God's truth give you hope. So there's a desire that, that God's truth would grow us in godliness. May the truth of God conquer us. And finally, may the truth of God give us hope. Without the foundation of truth, your greatest hope is really only in yourself or it's going to be um, in others. 
to be true to you. You have to trust in yourself. You have to trust in others to be true to you. It's not a stable place to be. If you're like me, you know um, that you're probably not that reliable. Probably failed this morning. Probably failed the other day. We're not that reliable. And, And people fail us all the time. Where does hope lie then? It lies in the foundation of God's truth. Truth. Jesus offers a lot more than than the hope that you can get from within yourself or from other people. The hope from your spouse or from your kids loving you. Jesus offers you a lot more. By faith, the manifestation of God in Christ, it is nothing but hopeful. Nothing but hope filling for our people. There's two results of faith and knowledge of the truth which promote godliness there. And, and notice in verse 2 he says, there's two results. of the, the first is a present result and the second is a future result. Look at me with, with me at uh, verse 2. There's the hope of eternal life. So first, the fruit of faith and knowledge, knowing the truth. The fruit of, of Paul's efforts in proclaiming the gospel to this people is that they would be people of hope not people of fear. This is not wishful thinking, hesitant thinking. We we don't really think of this type of hope as in in our day and age. It's confident expectation in Christ. I am secure right now. Second, the fruit of being in Christ is that we are bound for eternal life. So we have present hope, right now, and we have a promise of eternal life. Another term would be glorification. The promise that you, weak and frail, by faith in Christ, are not going to be, you're not condemned. You have eternal life in store for you. And this is a special element for us to close on, just to build our hope as we go out. So, <clears throat> look at me in verse, with, with me, verse 2. Paul wants to give us some special attention to the, to the nature of this hope. Hope of eternal life, he says, first, it's promised by God. It's promised before the age of the began. Who, who makes the promise? It's by God who never lies. It's, it's promised by God who never lies, and it's, and it's made known at the proper times, in the perfect time of God, it's made known through the preaching entrusted to Paul. And we have access to the word of God, the preaching entrusted to Paul. So this hope of eternal life, given before time by God, through a promise that he's manifested, that he's given to Paul, and now it's being proclaimed to you and me right now. It's a message for our hope and it's built by a God who did it before time. Before you ever sinned, God had a promise of salvation. God ensured his salvation. So that means if your fear right now is that God cannot save me because I am a sinner now. God founded his salvation in a promise that he made before you were even born. So you don't have to look at the present circumstance and say, I am I'm un, uh, unable to be saved. 
I can look at the promise that God made before time began, and there I can have hope. My hope is in Christ, who saves me from all my sin, manifested by God at the proper time in a plan that he established before time. Your hope doesn't rest on your abilities. Let it rest in Christ. So God has laid a foundation. His foundation is truth. He is true. He, he gives truth. And he's going to build his church on that. He is building his church on that. So our, as we walk through this letter, and as we walk out now, may we continue. Trust in God by faith. Know that his, in his truth, your, your grow, you will grow in godliness in his truth. If I press into his truth and, and what he has revealed, growth will happen. And let's hope. Hope in the promise of, of eternal life that God gives. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you are a God who makes and keeps promises. And in Christ, you offer the greatest hope of all the world, a hope that uh, can kill fear and doubt, a hope that, we, that, that, brings, um, that makes people that are um, ununified unified. It brings us together around, around Christ who is our head. May we walk out of, into this room and even as we gather um, for this meal, may we, may we share in that common unity we have our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray, amen.